The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode of the History of Literature podcast is brought to you by The Smart Awesome Show, a new podcast that focuses on smart people who do awesome things. In this week's episode, we talk to Jennifer Weitzel, a nurse from Wisconsin who started a foundation to help the people of Haiti. What's it like to manage a nonprofit organization? What has she learned? And can the rest of us find some inspiration in her experiences? That's The Smart Awesome Show, available wherever you get your podcasts and at smartawesomeshow.com. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. We have a good one today on this Thanksgiving week. Thanksgiving, at least here in the U.S. It's probably the best holiday, right? It's one with traditions, family, friends, giving thanks, sharing a meal. And our History of Literature podcast has traditions as well. This is the episode where I get all weepy and mopey about my guests. And of course... You, the listeners, how thankful I am. Well, I'm not going to do that this year, people. I'm holding tough. I do want to thank old friend of the show, Christina, who signed up to be a Patreon. People, I cannot tell you how gratifying it is to have such dedicated listeners and such generous Patreons. It truly is something that makes me proud and and pleased. And, well, it almost feels like I have a a second family here. You, the listeners, have been so wonderful for so long. Hanging tough. I I hung tough for about 30 seconds, didn't I? <laughs> Next year, don't worry. I'll, I'll savage you all. <laughs> I worked somewhere once where a guy did this. He was planning to leave, and he came by to ask me some advice. There was a tradition at this office that whenever anyone left, there was a farewell party, and the person leaving would be toasted by a senior member of the office, and then the person leaving would give a few remarks, and he thought I'd be a good person to ask about the kind of speech he should give. So I said, well, you know, I've been to a lot of these, and there are a couple of things that everyone does. One thing you have to do is thank the staff and he said, yeah, I was thinking about going in a different direction on that one. <laughs> a different direction. I just just stared at him. A different direction on that one? What could that possibly mean? That he was going to denigrate the staff? So, fear not. I doubt I'll go in a different direction on this one. I'm sure I'll be thanking you again next year, and hopefully I'll remember to do so many times in between. Because without the the half a million of you who have so far listened to this thing, and the several hundred or maybe it's a thousand who have emailed or commented or signed up at patreon.com slash literature to give a small donation, I would not have a show, which 
has been a very rewarding experience. Speaking of rewarding, we still have mugs and tote bags and virtual coffees available at historyofliterature.com slash shop. So head on over there. They won't be available for long. And if you buy now, they should arrive in time for the holidays. The tote bags are pretty cool. Ms. Jack Wilson carries one around and gets a lot of compliments. And the mugs are nice, too. There are a couple of different sizes there. That's historyofliterature.com slash shop. So today we have J.D. Salinger and The Catcher in the Rye, a reconsideration of sorts. This is one of the first books that Mike Palindrome and I went through together 20-some years ago. He joins me now to talk about our recent rereading of it. What an important book. It's really impossible to say how influential this book is in American letters, maybe global literature. I'm not sure anything or anyone has been more influential recently. There's a real before and after. And its cultural influence is also astonishing. It's rare for a book to jump out of literary history and enter history history the way this one has. You could say that about Huck Finn, I suppose, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Catcher in the Rye is right up there. There's so much to talk about, I want to get right to it. If anyone needs a refresher, I mean, the book has sold 65 million copies. I'm not sure anyone needs a refresher, but if anyone does need one, The Catcher in the Rye is the story of a teenager, Holden Caulfield, who is recounting the story of being expelled from his fancy prep school in Pennsylvania and traveling home to New York City. An immediate success, thanks to its compelling prose style, it's told in the vocabulary and diction of a world-weary adolescent, and its themes of alienation, thanks to its themes of alienation, the novel became a touchstone of protest and disaffection throughout the Eisenhower era and beyond. Its author, Jerome David Salinger, responded to success by secluding himself in his Connecticut home, avoiding publicity and requests to market Holden Caulfield in various ways, in the movies, in advertising, and so on, for the rest of his life. Adam Gopnik considers it one of the, quote, three perfect books, end quote, in American literature, along with Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and The Great Gatsby, and believes that no book has ever captured a city better than Catcher in the Rye captured New York in the 50s. In June 2009, the BBC's Finn Lohrer wrote that, 58 years since publication, the book is still regarded as the defining work on what it is like to be a teenager. Holden is at various times disaffected, disgruntled, alienated, isolated, directionless, and sarcastic. John Updike was a fan, and Vladimir Nabokov, and Bill Gates, and George H.W. Bush, and Steven Spielberg, and Jerry Lewis, and millions of others. It's been banned in different locations ever since publication, and it's also one of the most commonly taught books in high schools and colleges across the country. On the darker side, two confused young men hell-bent on assassination cited the book as an influence, leading to the death of John Lennon and the attempt on Ronald Reagan's life. It's hard to imagine a novel, any novel, ever having that kind of impact on the world today. As a story, as a piece of the history of literature puzzle, The Catcher in the Rye stands alone. It's rare for a novel to have the kind of history that it does. If you were putting together a time capsule of the second half of the 20th century in America, you would want to include a copy. I'm not sure there's another book, fiction or nonfiction, that would deserve its place more. But what do we think of it today? 
now that kids don't talk exactly the way Holden did, now that alienation is a well-recognized trope, possibly a cliché, now that every young adult author has Holden and his voice to draw from if they so choose, and many of them do, do we still need Holden? Do we still respond in the same way? What's so great about The Catcher in the Rye? Mike Palindrome, president of the Literature Supporters Club, will join us to wrestle with this question after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor. And they're delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code LITERATURE50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Okay, joining me once again is Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. Thanks, Jack, for having me back. Okay, so tonight we're doing J.D. Salinger. I feel like this one is 25 years in the making. I think we've been talking about Salinger uh, off and on since probably 1990. Yeah, he, you know, he comes back and forth in my mind. Like Sometimes I think, oh my gosh, what a great book, and other times I think, Oh, I, that's part of my past. Yeah, I have a real love-hate relationship with this book and with certain elements of the book, which we can get to. We're going to do a draft on uh, 10 things about the catcher in the rye, 10 great things or 
10 things that might be a little personal, a little too personal, our choices in order to, to be objective here. And it's, I think it's hard for a lot of people to be objective when it comes to the catcher in the rye. It really depends on where you were when you read it and how old you were and what period in your life it was. Yeah, you know, I, I was surprised to learn that he intended the book to be for adults. Yeah. Maybe not 40-year-olds, but definitely he he was surprised by the uh, the way it was embraced by teenagers. Mm-hmm. And he obviously had some adult themes in his mind. Maybe we're previewing the draft a little bit because some of those themes were the things that I wanted to choose. Uh, but he did kind of transform them into this world of Holden Caulfield and the the teenager's world. Yeah. So where were you when you first read it? Was this a high school read for you? Yeah, I mean, I may have confused it with another book that I was trying to read to impress a girl. But <laughs> I, I feel like I was in, I was either a freshman in high school and or in eighth grade and junior high and um i think someone told me that it was her favorite book so i i i, I quickly read it so and yeah. then this the second time i read it i reread it in my late 20s and then i just reread it for the third time uh last week mm. oh so just three times yeah all right but, but i have read franny and zoe yeah uh, four times. Oh, okay. And nine, and I, nine stories? Well, I've only read For Esme uh, with Love and Squalor uh, multiple times. And I've read that probably about six times. <laughs> so. And the other books you've, the other stories in Nine Stories you've just read once? I think I have like a real irrational love. I feel like I like that blue period one. Mm. What's that? Oh, the Dahmer Smith's blue period. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, but I think, but there's something like everyone loves a perfect day for banana fish, and right. I just I never t- quite took to that. Mm. It's uh, as I was doing some research for this episode and going through the people who were influenced by Salinger, uh-huh. it, I was really surprised by how many of his near contemporaries you can trace his influence to. Like I hadn't really considered before that Philip Roth is often cited as somebody who was heavily influenced by Salinger. And it made sense to me as soon as I saw that, but it, I guess I was thinking that Roth would be somebody who was fully formed. And instead I think, uh, Salinger's stories in the New Yorker probably hit him at just the right time. And, and they attribute his, his, uh, voice and his comic timing to Salinger. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised by that. And I, you know, I, I kind of think, of um, him as influencing everyone, but not you know being singled out by a writer as mm. as as a key influence. Mm-hmm. Another so. one I was surprised by was Updike, uh, who said that Salinger's stories really showed Updike what he could do with a story, which really surprised me. I I think of Updike and and Roth as looking to Henry James or some of the. Mm-hmm. you know, previous generation. But I guess it does make sense that their prose style um, has a kind of energy and a kind of colloquialism. And there's a lot in Salinger that you can see has really pervaded literature ever since, especially young adult novels. I mean, 
my son, who's in eighth grade, read The Catcher in the Rye over the summer, and he found it kind of boring, <laughs> especially the middle part, which I agree uh, I found when I was rereading it. I do think it kind of slags, and it's, you know, it's really a novella that is built into a novel, but it, it doesn't, there's not a lot of development or anything in the middle part. What I was struck by was that my son didn't see the book as really refreshing or speaking to him or uh, mm-hmm. that it was unusual to have this voice, you know, the way it probably was for us even to have huh. this voice who's speaking in a a kind of slang and just a, a confiding narrator. And, and I realized my son, he gets that with just about every book that he reads. You know, when it, if he's reading Rick Riordan in the Percy Jackson series or anything that's pitched at teenagers mm-hmm. or preteens, uh, it's borrowing the Salinger voice in a lot of ways. It's made Salinger himself not as fresh or just as as astonishing as it probably was for 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I mean, I think probably um, this book, you, you know, the history behind this book is that um, he had written a short story that he expanded into Catcher in the Rye. So when you said it was, it's really a novella, mm-hmm. um, he, he had struggled with uh, writing other novels and he couldn't do it. And then he returned to this story, the, the short story he had, he had written early on and he wrote catch in the right quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So, and he, um, dropped the other kind of larger books he was working on mm. and catch in the right was a huge hit instantly. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I don't think we can quite appreciate because there's so much plateauing of, of, of action. I mean, it's not even, it, it, or there's delay. There's a delay of action, which I really enjoyed the second time when I read it, and even more the third time. Mm. It, we, you may not feel that reading it as a young kid. Yeah, especially a young kid today. Yeah. But I do think it still has a kind of power, and it's still, it's, it's still worth reading, definitely. But I think uh, a lot of people are probably like you and I. You read it, and... And you maybe think it's the pinnacle of literature, and then you kind of outgrow it a little bit, and you yeah. start to look for something a little, uh, a little deeper. But let's—I feel like I've trampled over all of the things I was planning to pick in the draft. So, <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we start with that, and I'll let you have first pick as usual. Okay, so I went with two things. I'll discuss the second one later. Okay. But the first thing is pretension. Ooh. Okay. Uh, and the second thing, of course, is the anti-pretension. Okay. So I remember when I first read this, I loved the level of pretension. Mm-hmm. I found the, the book so sophisticated, even though the prose style was so simple. Mm. And in, you know, in retrospect, I'm not quite sure Salinger intended people to like the glimpse into the upper class and pretension like wealthy families, homes mm. with maids, mm-hmm. you know, running around Manhattan at night, taking cabs as a teenager. Yep. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure he was that interested in that message, but for me, it was like entering 
kind of a better world, not even a more exclusive world. I, I really felt like this would be, it would be great to live in this world. But weren't you living in the world? I mean, you didn't, you weren't at a, at a upstate prep school, but you were in Manhattan. I was, but I also was maybe spending very, you know, I wasn't spending as much time in this world as I would have liked <laughs> as, as a teenager. <laughs> so, you know, I, I didn't have to wear, you know, a, a, a school blazer Right. You know, and I didn't have like the 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 scene where he they compare luggage and he says like, well, you can't room with somebody who has worse luggage than you because then they're constantly, you know, looking over at your luggage. And I once roomed with somebody who had worse luggage and I put away my luggage. And actually, when I went to the <laughs> library, I came back and he had taken out my luggage because he wanted to show people how good his roommate's luggage was. And, <laughs> and I remember thinking, you know, I, I like I don't know if. I mean, I loved it. I loved all of that. Yeah. <laughs> you so. know, this is so interesting. I feel like I'm I'm seeing uh, windows opening up here and whole new <laughs> vistas that I hadn't seen before. So this reminds me of a movie that you had really liked around the same time that you and I were reading The Catcher in the Rye. And mm -hmm. I never really uh, found much worthwhile in it, which is uh, Metropolitan. Yeah, I love that. Whit Stillman's <laughs> Metropolitan. Yeah, I love that. And to me, it was sort of, uh, I've always been a little bit repulsed by this world that's being described in The Catcher in the Rye or, you know, that uh, it's not something I've ever aspired to. I've always wanted to kind of reject it. And I've always probably not given it as much credit as it deserves or not uh, found it as interesting as it probably can be as a socioeconomic entity, this world of prep schools and and kids who have wealthy parents and everything. I, I've just, you know, if, if someone had described to me your world in Manhattan and the world of Holden Caulfield in Manhattan, I would not have said, I'll take Holden Caulfield's world. I'd say, I'll take Mike's world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I... I mean, I knew kids from prep school, but there was something about catching the rye that I guess cemented in my mind the idea that prep school would be like the, the best way to get to know somebody, mm. which yeah. is, I mean, it, it's completely irrational, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's also ambitious, like, you know, to try to think that you could really know someone by living with them and spending all this time with them. Mm, yeah. It's just not the way I knew kids. Um, so yeah. I, I, I fully acknowledge the fact that I had created this other image of Catch on the Rye than what was intended. But I wonder if a lot of people read this and thought, oh, my gosh, like this is such a strange world. Yeah. Well, one yeah. thing about it is you feel like the kids are being allowed to grow up faster, you know, and maybe it's because yeah. of parental neglect. But right. the, Holden, <laughs> Holden at 15 or 16, where he's up there off on his own and he's got some money and he's got to take the train back in and he's got to he can get a hotel and. But even apart from his adventure, just being in the world of the prep school gives him all of this autonomy that 
most 15 and 16 year olds who live with their parents might not have. Yeah. And I mean, it's a dangerous kind of freedom Mm, mm -hmm. as a parent. Now I was a little worried about him. I mean, I know that he turns out okay, but I mean, there, there are these little stories. The first time I read it, I never quite, I mean, I was, I was 13 or 14. I didn't quite appreciate where the boy who's teased and won't um, apologize and then jumps out the window and Mm. kills himself. Yeah. I mean, there are, there, there are probably three, two or three moments like that in this book where I think I started thinking like, oh, Salinger really meant this to be for adults. I had forgotten all about, is it, uh, who's the girl that he's really upset that is one of oh. his roommates? Is it Jane? Yeah. And I had forgotten they, all about Jane. And yeah, they have how, this moment where they almost kiss Yeah, years ago. And Jane has such sadness running through her backstory. And yeah. Holden feels so protective of her. And, well, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this as a draft because everything is, is <laughs> jumping all around. But, uh, you know, one yeah. of the things that I really felt, maybe I'll just take my number one. Okay. And what I'll take is the way that this comes right out of Salinger's experience in the war. And, oh, yeah. you know, it's easy to forget that he had spent 11 months in combat and had been one of the first ones into a concentration camp and when that was liberated. And he had really seen a lot of atrocities. I think a lot of people focus on the idea of the catcher being something a a soldier dealing with trauma might envision. You know, all of these children who are going off of the cliff um, are like, you know, young 18 and 19-year-old soldiers who are, are headed toward the the enemy fire. But there's also just, you know, he kind of puts it into the uh, the story of his brother, Allie, Holden's brother, Allie, who died. And it's really about, he kind of universalizes it in a way. I think if it were an anti-war book where it was just about the horrors of battle, it's kind of hard for people to identify with if they haven't been a soldier. We can we can try to put our, our mind in that place, but it's a little bit hard to do. But if you deal with, you know, maybe just the loss of a, of a brother or something else that's a little more commonplace or easy for us to imagine, I feel like he's still getting at this, how do you deal with, with unimaginable sadness and tragedy and unexpected tragedy? And how do you pick up the pieces in that aftermath? But it's almost more accessible. You know, anybody reading this could imagine what it's like to be Holden and have lost a little brother. I guess the thing that I'm taking here is the way that Salinger has given us these grown-up themes and the adult themes, but he's woven it into this story in a way that just seems like it's flowing out of Holden's personality. Yeah, I mean, that. so my... Uh, one of my picks, I mean, it, it wasn't my next pick, but I'll pick it here, is that this book is a is a gateway to the whole Glass family. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I know people consider Seymour an introduction to be not, a lot of people don't consider it to be their favorite work, but I love that book. And Seymour, if people don't know this, Seymour Glass, there's the Glass family who seem 
related to Holden in many ways, yeah. but they're not. But uh, so Salinger wrote stories about the Glass family and novels about the Glass family, and Seymour um, served in the war mm. and mm-hmm. suffered a, a head injury and depression. And I just found that you know rereading this, it reminded me so much of the Glass family. And I, when I read Catching the Rye when I was fourteen, I immediately devoured. Uh, Franny and Zoe and Nine Stories and I I would I would say that Franny and Zoe is probably one, the most important book to me when I was probably like between fourteen to eighteen. Mm. And it's got precocious kids in it. That's sort of the heart of the Glass family, right? Is that there are these radio yeah, celebrities? They, yeah, they've all been on this uh, game show. And each one, as they reach a certain age, appears on the show and wins it. So, mm. <laughs> but Seymour, um, they each have their own problems, and you know they, they're neurotic in a certain way, and they're always searching for meaning. And I mean, reading a little more about Salinger's life after his fame, I didn't know this, but he turned to almost every religion, turned to Christian science, and he tried Scientology. And, Mm. you know, he really was one of the Glass family members searching for something, you know, the the meaning of uh, of it all, Um, as grand as that sounds. And so, yeah, I mean, you, you can easily imagine that the war had had such an impact on his view of you know people complaining the phonies and yeah so let me let me segue into my next pick okay because i really had a i mean my first one i had kind of put this under the theme of alienation and i had two two parts of that Mm -hmm. i think the the reason why the book resonated so much with people and it sold you know 60 million copies was it fed into this idea of alienation that everybody could feel. You know, every teenager can feel like they were one of the people who didn't fit in or who who kind of got it that everybody else didn't. You know, and I know this is a real Eisenhower era sort of complaint and it the Beats talked about it and a lot of others did too that there was this uniformity of culture. Right. So the first thing that impressed me was the way that a soldier coming home from war might feel like this is not the reality of life. And if you had seen the things that I've seen and the evils and the atrocities that I saw when I was in Europe, you wouldn't be, you know, at the sock hop and, and at the soda fountain and, you know, whatever was going on in the 50s. And you wouldn't be kind of turning everything into this smiley face. Everybody, every everybody's happy. Everything feels good because war is actually hell, and we've all just been through this war. So that was sort of my first thing, and then my second thing was the anti-Semitism that he had faced. Mm. And you know, he was half Jewish, half Catholic, and he was sent off to this military school when he was a teenager, and he was eventually kicked out of it, kind of like Holden. But uh, I read this astonishing uh, quote or anecdote, I guess, that his daughter Margaret had had written. And she said that a few years before Salinger arrived at his school, 
there was a Jewish boy there who had finished uh, second in his class. And Mm -hmm. he had found when they sent out his yearbook that the page that he was on in the yearbook had been perforated. And it was done so that the other boys at the school who bought the yearbook could remove it if they wanted. You know, wow. it'd be easy for them to remove. Yeah. And oh just, my God. Yeah. And just thinking of a teenager or anyone for that matter, but that kind of institutionalized hatred of you and, you know, and Salinger showing up there. And then Margaret had pointed out that being half Jewish was difficult in its own way. You know, she said it was, I think her quote was, it was no picnic being Jewish either, or being Jewish in those years wasn't an asset. But being half Jewish meant that you were neither fish nor fowl, not accepted anywhere, always on the outside. So he didn't have a community that he could find any comfort in either because he was, I guess, not accepted or or didn't feel comfortable in the Jewish community either. So here he is. He's trying to be a Holden in some ways, and he's seeing that the real Holdens or the let's say the real wasps who are at this school are have such a strong rejection of anyone who's Jewish that they would perforate the yearbook page to make it easier for those people to pretend like that person didn't exist. And so what I, yeah. uh, But what I feel like is Salinger, you know, he didn't make that the book. I mean, the book could have been based on that. You know, it could have been, yeah. it, it could have been a Jewish character who was trying to fit in or trying to navigate through this world. But instead, I think what Salinger did by making Holden Caulfield somebody who could be part of that world if he had chosen to, he kind of universalized the experience that it wasn't about uh, a subgroup that was trying to fit in. It was about the alienation that anyone could feel if you're faced with this scenario or this society where everybody seems to think the same way everybody seems to agree on what's important or what's cool and what's how people should be and how you should get what you want and then you are the one who sees it for what it really is which is that everyone is a bunch of phonies and you know that they don't understand what's what's really important or they don't see the actual truth they're all just kind of sheep going along with that the masses are all moving in concert with one another without really thinking. And I think that's what Salinger was able, I think he took his experience as someone who felt that way, but he said, this doesn't have to just be because of the way, you know, me being half Jewish and half Catholic, this could be something I can ascribe to any teenager. And that's what turned the book from probably a, a normal literary fiction into this enormous cultural phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, I wrote in my notes, you know, what do frat bros make of this book? Yeah. Like, what are they, I mean, like on 123, he, I mean, there, there are a number of moments where he rails against frat bros, but he says, um, on 123, he says, Guys that always talk about how many miles to get to the gallon in their goddamn cars. 
Guys that get sore and childish as hell if you beat them at golf or even just some stupid game like ping pong. Guys that are very mean. Guys that never read books. Guys that are very boring. But I have to be careful about that. I mean about calling certain guys bores. I don't understand boring guys. I really don't. Yeah. So when I read that, I was like, I mean, he attacks so many people, but he really does attack people who kind of have it all and act like that yeah. and act like it. I mean, so, I mean, what, what do those, that brat, that broad swath of masculine, you know, <laughs> masculinity, what, I mean, what do they make of this book? Yeah. Well, you know, I read this thing that the initial publisher for the book, uh, thought that Holden Caulfield was insane. <laughs> yeah you know I, I mean we should point out to the listeners if they don't know this because i thought the book was published in the 60s the book was published yeah. actually in 1945 uh are you sure i think it was 1951 really it says 1945 on my copy oh oh well the it was based on the stories oh you know, okay. so the the part of it that had oh, okay you're right 1951 yeah so 51 was the catcher in the ride the book but i think the story one of the stories that came up earlier um, yeah you know that he adapted for part of the book i think had been published earlier in a magazine but yeah so the publisher thought holden was insane and when i think about that now i think it's possible that the publisher just couldn't see holden because he himself was so part of that culture and that world that it just seemed to him like anyone who would reject it so strongly must be crazy. You know, that like he that he was paranoid and seeing phonies everywhere, that he wasn't um you know, that he did that he didn't just want to fit in and, and hang out with all right. the cool kids. There's a scene where I'm trying to find it where they talk about where, where he talks about um, the kind of people that he champions hmm. instead of the frat bros. And he says uh, on 167, um, nobody would let them in if they were some dopey, pimply guy. Everybody was always locking their door when somebody wanted to come in. And they had this goddamn secret fraternity that was too yellow not to join. There was this one pimply, boring guy, Fred Robert Ackley, that wanted to get in. He just kept trying to get join and they wouldn't let him just because he was boring and pimply. I don't even feel like talking about it. It was a stinking school. Take my word. Mm. And when I read that, I thought of uh, the film Ghost World mm. where at a high, the last high school dance after graduation, the two main characters are looking down from the balcony at a bunch of kids and there's this one kid eating cake by himself and He's sitting at a table because all the tables were already complete. He's sitting by himself. Mm. And one one of the main characters says, oh, look at him. He looks so sad. You know, I'm glad I won't have to see him again for the rest of my life. And the other one says, what are you talking about? You know, those are our people. Mm. Like that's <laughs> we're on their side. Right, right. Yeah, it's like, uh, it reminds me, when I just got out of college, I went to uh, Taiwan, and my cousin was there. And this was when Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan were in the news. 
right. and if anyone is too young to remember, Tanya Harding was the. They were both figure skaters who were headed for the Olympics. Nancy Kerrigan, I think, was a little better. And Tanya Harding's boyfriend, in a kind of wild, uh, crazy scheme, uh, hit her knee with a, I think it was some kind of baton or rod or something, and and injured Nancy Kerrigan, and it almost uh, kept her out of the Olympics. It didn't, but uh, anyway, for a while, Nancy Kerrigan was America's princess, and Tanya Harding was the devil. And she was the butt of every joke, and she was, everyone wanted to see her lose, and it was just this piling on on Tanya Harding. And I remember my cousin really sticking up for her and talking about, you know, the world that she had grown up in. And and I sort of said, you know, how are you, how are you taking the side of somebody who's was somehow involved in this where they were just injuring another athlete. And he said, everywhere I've ever been, people find one person to single out and they all make themselves feel better by criticizing that person. And they just sometimes for no reason, they'll just pick on one person and they'll make fun of them for the way they look or something about them. And Mm -hmm. he said, he just felt that with Tanya Harding, that it was this, there was no reason. It was an overreaction. There was no reason to pile on the way people were doing with Tanya Harding, and it was this sort of yeah uh, instinct of the mob that he was resenting or that he was sensing and feeling uh, uncomfortable with. And there's there's a bit of that in the Catcher in the Rye, and this was one of the things I wanted to draft. So maybe it's my turn. I don't know. We're kind of losing track of this here, but. Um, <laughs> You know, this book came out the same year as Hannah Arendt's uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, a lot of this could be Salinger coming back from Europe where he's been fighting Nazis and thinking back to his prep school, his military school, and thinking, you know, with the wrong leader and the wrong set of ideologies those guys that I went to school with could have been Hitler youth. Yeah. There's a danger in thinking in lockstep. There's a danger in deciding that you're part of a group that matters more than, you know, the Jewish kid whose yearbook page you want to perforate. All of this is feeding into this uniformity of culture and thought. And it's easy to see Holden as somebody who is saying, we need people who think differently. We need people who are willing to challenge this kind of authority or this kind of group mentality or this mob. And I, you know, I I don't know if uh, Salinger read Hannah Arendt or anything, but it it seems likely to me that at the very least these were just issues that were in the air after coming out of World War II like that. And it doesn't seem um, like a a complete coincidence that in the same year this book came out, there was a, a treatise on totalitarianism. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that makes this book so instantly relatable is this idea that it's us against them. Mm-hmm. And the them really do seem like they deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
like when he just gets rid of them in a scene by switching scenes or he puts them out of our minds like i find it very satisfying that like yes they're they're handsome and they're wealthy and they get the girl at least we don't have to think about them anymore we're on to the next scene yeah yeah <laughs> so it's a way of eradicating them so when you were reading this book and thinking that the prep school world would be the world that you wish you had spent more time in. Were you thinking that you would want to spend more time in it as a Holden where you were, you were oh, there, yeah. but you were, so you wanted to be immersed just, in this world so you yeah. could be, uh, exposing the phoniness of all of it. Yeah. I wanted to make fun of, I, I mean, I think that was one of the things <laughs> I wanted to make fun of people. I mean, I, <laughs> I think right. like my my so my next pick was to talk about how sexually arousing I found the novel. Ah. But and also romantic. Yeah. But I think my idea of romance was basically to find a girl who I could sit next to on a bench mm. and make fun of other people together. Yeah. And prep school, the, you know, the world of prep schools would give you worthwhile targets. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, right. Like you need to get the right. targets. Yeah, but I, I see. I see. <laughs> but I mean, rereading this, I, I remember loving the romantic parts uh-huh. in this book. Like he he yeah. talks, he rings up Sally, who's an I don't know an uh, old friend of uh, a, a new friend of his, and mm-hmm. he's not crazy about her the way he is about Jane. But this is the description when he finally meets up with her. Finally, old Sally, he calls Mm -hmm. her old Sally, Mm -hmm. old Sally started coming up the stairs and I started down to meet her. She looked terrific. She really did. She had on this black coat and sort of a black beret. She hardly ever wore a hat, but that beret looked nice. The funny part is I felt like marrying her the minute I saw her. I'm crazy. I don't even like her much. And all of, yet all of a sudden I felt like I was in love with her and I wanted to marry her. I swear to God, I'm crazy. I admit it. I mean, I, I remember reading, you know, passages like this and thinking, you know, that I, I mean, I don't think I had read a romantic book before this. Mm. And so those sections just bowled me over. Yeah. There was one point where it came out in an edition as a Pulp Fiction. And it's got this Pulp Fiction cover. And <laughs> it's it on the cover. It's a guy who's soliciting a prostitute. Right, and yeah, was... that that scene, you know, where he's at the, I guess it's the hotel bar. I think it's that. It's like that scene where I feel like it's been done in movies since, where the the guy pays the prostitute just to talk to him mm-hmm. rather than sleep with him. I mean, I feel like like so many movies have been influenced by this. Yeah, Bye Bye Catching the Rye. But like, what did your? I mean, I don't think I thought much of that scene as a kid i mean what did your son think of that scene because i was a little shocked by it as an adult i know <laughs> i haven't talked to him about it i i have i i need to i was uh i was a little struck yeah. by that as well i had completely forgotten about it and you know i think you're right and a lot of people have said that sort of to the detriment of of contemporary literature that you know that there are people there are men especially mm-hmm who are, um, I guess, around our age. And they tend to, scenes that 
that maybe should be about sex tend to be about cuddling, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's, there's this danger of infantilizing grown men and women uh, that everything is just about, you know, it, it follows that paradigm of paying a prostitute to just to talk, but it, it's also in the other relationships as well. You know, let's just, let's just sit here under the stars or let's just commune with one another as friends or there's nothing wrong with that if it happens in real life or if it happens in literature but if it's used because authors are trying to avoid Mm -hmm. the more difficult sexual politics or the transactional nature of relationships it can feel a little bit like you're sugarcoating the real world yeah, I mean, that moment where, I mean, there are just a couple of details just just are incredible. Like the prostitute says basically, like, I got woken up out of a sound sleep mm. because, you know, my guy told me, you know, you wanted somebody. And then the fact that she, he, he Holden realizes how young he, young she is mm. mm-hmm. and, and that just kind of, you know, makes him, you know, step back for a moment. Yeah. So I'm going to move into what I, another thing that I had on my list, which is a sort of secret about this book is that it's all about literature. And it's a literature of a certain kind. It's like about a literature, a literary sensibility, you might say. It's the literature of observation and small moments and having these minor and and sometimes major epiphanies and seeing things that other people don't, you know, where everybody else cares about the football game and they're all caught up in going to watch their school team play and Holden cares about where the ducks go in the winter and he's nostalgic for things and he loves kids and he's, he's, it doesn't seem like an accident that English is the subject, the only subject that he's good at. And, not because he likes you know epic heroes or something, but because he likes those little details that other people don't notice. And he he writes an essay about his brother Ali's baseball glove, and he just and the things he can't get out of his head, you know, the ducks and the nuns and uh, his sort of sadness and his sorrow for people like Old Sally or Jane. That the way that those things strike him, it's such a literary sensibility it you really see it and you think well this is how salinger sees the world and this is why salinger is such a great writer because these moments flare up for him too and you know that holden sort of famously hates the movies and the way (laughs) that it it seems uh it takes away from his brother's writing he likes his brother his his brother db is a writer and Holden likes the stuff he does when he's writing, and he kind of hates what, what DB does when he's writing for the movies because it, mm-hmm. I think in his view, it takes away from those genuine moments, the moments that should be celebrated and examined, and it's, instead it floods it all in Hollywood sentimentality. Yeah, he has high standards. I totally agree with you. I mean, that scene where he's with those two women in the bar... Mm-hmm. And he's kind of kind of running circles around them, yeah. You know, and making comments and just kind of trying to get drunk and yeah. kind of 
talk himself into trying to you know sleep with them and he's like rationalizing which of the one which of the two he would accept as a last resort and yeah and it's completely because on an intellectual level he 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 disapproves of the way they spend their time and think yeah i i have to say that in this most recent read that yeah. that passage was a, a good example of this there are times where i really don't like holden <laughs> or i really find myself um thinking yeah. that i don't uh, i don't really like him as much as i think the author likes him maybe that's the way to put it <laughs> you know and i, I sort of yeah. that, that was one of those passages where i just think well here's this guy you know who's he like he, here's this uh i don't view him as this infallible hero i view him sometimes as being kind of uh irritating and full of this sort of misplaced confidence or like his agitation uh, kind of disturbs me. I'm still cheering for him in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me ask you another thing. Here's another thing that I re-examined this time around, the style. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the the voice and the style? Well, so, I, you know, I think this is why a lot of kids read him. I mean, the language is almost like it almost feels like it was translated. I'm going to say something pretty insulting from like some Eastern European language. <laughs> <laughs> like there's something. <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe you should explain that a little more. <laughs> there, there, there's something like very stark and mm. just like you know, there are class differences, there are differences in style, there are, you know, physical differences. I mean, everything is so laid out. Mm. Um, and I think that it, it helps create this unique brand of neurotic thinking mm. that appealed to me. But it's also, I mean, I don't want to say that it's a fourth grade level, but it's so straightforward. It's unlike like any any other kind of literature I I, I read. Yeah, I mean yeah. It, it's sort of like Huck Finn. You know, you yeah. you have to find sort of a voice, a real storyteller's voice. You know, I went to high school with this guy who never finished a book in his life, and then he called me up when I was in college and he said, "I just finished a book," and I said, "No way!" You know, because he just he he like went through all of high school. <laughs> without ever uh, completing a book. He just would do what he needed to do to write the book report or, he uh-huh. just, you know, and then he'd watch television and play sports and he just didn't have the, the patience or the interest really to make it all the way to the end of a book. And then he called yeah. me up and he said, I finished Catcher in the Rye, you know, and I think it, it is, it's, it's very readable, but I think this time around, especially I was struck by how much the style kind of graded on me. You know, it was mm. the italics and the the way the sentences would, you know, he'd say, I did X, I really did. And, uh-huh. you know, there's a lot of, of literary ticks. And it, it yeah. I don't know, this time around, it just got me where I thought, um, I felt a little claustrophobic. You know, and the way I sort of was thinking about it, I 
I had this whole metaphor in my head of how the style, you know, that my kids and I both like eating pancakes with maple syrup. Mm-hmm. But my kids would like their ideal pancakes with maple syrup would be like a river of maple syrup with some pancake bits floating in it. <laughs> that's, you know, that's what their plate looks like if we let them pour their own syrup. And mm-hmm. if I eat pancakes with maple syrup, I like just a little coating of maple syrup, you know, just just enough to kind of dampen the pancake a little bit. But if the, if the pancake's dry, I don't mind at all. And yes. reading this, I kind of felt like the style was like the syrup. And there was just too much of it. I just couldn't, I couldn't breathe because of all the syrup. And I, I wanted, I would kind of skim through all of the, the prose, trying to get to the meat, trying to get to the heart of the book and the things that I knew that I, I would really, that would resonate with me, that would be, that would move me in a way because I wasn't being moved just by the style. It wasn't enough for me to just recognize that here's a voice here's an interesting teenager or here's a voice I can identify with everything that was done that I thought was sort of at the service of the voice. And sometimes there are little jokes and things that I think are just Salinger kind of showing off or Salinger kind of Mm -hmm. uh, putting something into his prose. Those things just, I, I felt like they were a huge distraction and I just wanted to get to the scenes where Holden is really feeling something or making me feel something. You know, I, I it didn't bother me as much. Um, I guess I was finding it so relaxing. Mm. Um, oh, interesting. So, yeah, that that maybe, and, and I started to think maybe this is what, you know, why it appealed to me so much as a kid that it was almost like, like I was telling somebody that you know I I love the Carl Ove Nausgaard novels mm, because they're mm-hmm. better than TV, and uh, my friend was saying, "Well, that's insulting," you know, like what's not better than TV? And yeah. I, I said, "Well, no, I'm I what I mean is that, you know, for all the people who love TV, you know, yeah, right, and, right, like it it would have been hard for me to say, oh great, you know, you love." Uh, the Catcher in the Rye to this friend of mine who that was the first book he read, it would have been kind of hard for me to say, oh, you love The Catcher in the Rye. Now you should read some Henry James. Right. You know, that would have been this leap where he would have been like, no, that's not at all what I was looking for from a book. Uh Even though that's kind of the leap that I took, you know, would be like, oh, I love this. But the parts of this that I love are the parts that really engage me because of the fiction, not just the voice, you know, because of the the scenario, because of the description of the characters or or the dilemmas that they're in. And so you sort of go hunting for uh, George Eliot or Jane Austen or Tolstoy or somebody who's really put that onto the page. And, you know, for someone like my friend who had only read The Catcher in the Rye, you'd maybe point them toward... I don't know, Hemingway or, or somebody else that you know is is not, uh, you're not necessarily saying, oh, you, I'm glad you, uh, you found that you like swimming. Now, why don't you, you know, why don't I drop you in the middle of this ocean? <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I like the way you could hear Holden's voice, um, e- even on this third reread. I mean, because I know that the first time that that so impressed me mm. that when that scene where and, and all the characters do not just Holden that scene where he sneaks into the, back into the apartment and, and mm. um, wakes his sister up. That's and the, sister, the magical scene in the in the book for me. That, yeah. That's the the one scene that it, it really it really holds up. It really kind of stands yeah. apart. I don't think there's anything else like that in fiction. Her voice is just perfect. Mm-hmm. You know when she's like Holden. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and and she she basically is like, I'll go with you. I'll I'll go. I'll run away with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh man, the responsibility of, you know, an older sibling or a parent. Mm-hmm. That these kids, these are children, you know. Yeah. That, yeah. And you yeah. see Holden at his best there. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, I love that scene. I mean, it kind of reminds me, people uh, would always say that, you know, when, when you have a kid that, you're going to be amazed by how moving it is when like a two-year-old will hold a doll and try to feed the doll a bottle, you know, or you see like the nurturing side come out Uh Um, or if they have a younger sibling and, and they do something really thoughtful and take care of them. And, and it's kind of like that with Holden, like he's so damaged and he's so kind of uh, independent, fiercely independent and then when you see him really caring for Phoebe, who also is one of the few people in his world who he can sort of identify with and who he can can turn to to remember his brother and and just to understand him, even though she's not really she's not quite a peer yet because she's uh, so much younger. But on the other hand, she's also in some ways as mature, more mature than Holden is. And it's just a beautiful scene. Yeah. I mean, I, and I also, I mean, so my next pick is basically just how the humor works on many levels. Like I, I find that Phoebe scene to be that kind of sad humor that Mm -hmm. I love, Mm -hmm. um, where people are sort of done jockeying and just, they're they're almost like at the point of embrace, but you know they 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 talk and they 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 try to like catch up and yeah. Um, but the the humor I remember as a kid just thinking it was so sophisticated. There's a conversation he has with um, a classmate of his, and he he's he's basically rambling about different things and the classmate turns to him and says, must we have this inane conversation? <laughs> and I just, I remember thinking like, boy, I'm, I, I want to use that line. Yeah. <laughs> the next time my friend like ropes me into some like stupid conversation. Yeah. There's something about Salinger that hits home. It's in Franny and Zooey too, where it, he does it with these kids but it could almost be, you know, they could be in their 20s or I guess even older. But it seems especially important for people who are kind of at that age where they're still finding themselves. And they, they're so self-aware and they sort of say, they take stock of themselves and everyone around them. And they basically say, here's who we are. 
here's how everyone else is. Here's yeah. how we can fit into this. Here's how we should navigate this. And here's, you know, here's the way we're going to make our way through the world. And they have discussions about it or the discussions they have sort of have that underneath it. And yeah. there's something, it seems like Salinger really comes to life when the story turns to that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, you have young people saying lines, this is from Franny and Zoe, uh, Zoe says, I like to ride in trains too much. You never get to sit next to the window anymore when you're married. Mm. <laughs> As to why he never wants to get married. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, I, I think in, in Catching the Ride, too, I mean, I think there are just these little moments where the, the nostalgia, I mean, it's like a weird kind of teenage nostalgia. Mm-hmm kicks in i mean you because you, you, you think of nostalgia is something you know a middle-aged person has but actually i mean my daughter will tell me stuff like oh i remember that you know that photograph you know yeah and you you realize that nostalgia can be at a, at a pretty young age yeah oh and i can remember feeling how weird it was that i was really nostalgic for the 60s when i hadn't been born you know, <laughs> you know, but I would I would see photos of the Beatles or things that had happened in the '60s, and I would feel this sort of longing, and the time had passed, and you know, and I was probably 12 years old, like it. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think of the cultural importance of the Catcher in the Rye today? Where, how would you assess that? <laughs> I almost thought that they should hand this out in, in corporate America. <laughs> they, should, they should try to kind of wake people up. So you think it would still, it could still have that effect? I mean, it sells 250,000 copies a year, but that's probably mostly yeah. for schools and colleges and, and teenagers. But do you think it, it could have that effect if a bunch of 45-year-olds... Uh, you know, and CEOs and mid-level executives and everyone, if they were reading the book now. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it 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 you, you when you read this book, you you try to think like where of all the categories that Holden hates, like where do I slot in? Mm, mm-hmm. You know, like or or am I possibly Holden? Right. So it'd be yeah. like uh, I heard that. James Carville, uh-huh. when he was growing up in the South, and he read To Kill a Mockingbird, and he said, you know, by page three, I knew that Harper Lee was right and I was wrong. And he just felt like, I don't want to be on this, I want to be on the side of Atticus Finch. You know, I don't want to be on the side of these townspeople who are um, yeah. ag- against, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy that Atticus is defending, Tom, somebody, I think. And so you think that if we distributed this to all of these people in corporate America, that they would read it and think, hey, I'm a Holden. I don't want to be uh, uh, what the what the guy's name is, Strat, Strat later. Or, you know. <laughs> well, I, I think what they would do is they would not say a peep. But mm. um, I would like to think that in a quiet moment, maybe when they were mowing the, the lawn or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, having one too many beers, they would think like, how did I end up here? You know, <laughs> what should I be doing or what mm. did I want to ever do? Mm. Cause 
I mean, I work in corporate America, and I I perversely always try to corner people during like Christmas parties and whatever, and I try to turn the conversation really serious. Mm-hmm. And I always find, well, I often find that they just kind of look blankly at me, like I've just touched upon something that they they probably haven't thought about in a long time. Mm. You know, which is like, what are we doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, what is this Christmas party? Like, do we really want to be here? Like. And it's like this strange moment where they 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 look at me like their soul. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then and then I I go like you know you want you want to get another beer. Right. Yeah. To just like snap them out of it because yeah. it's you know. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you seem very optimistic that if we handed out this book, <laughs> we could make a lot of change. But I just heard this interview with the guy who wrote the biography of uh, Jan Wenner, the Rolling Stone editor. Oh, right. Yeah. And he was saying how it bothered him when he would interview Jan Wenner and they would get to the part where he was asking him questions about the 80s. And Mm -hmm. all Wenner would do would be to talk about his private jet. And he would say, (laughs) oh, well, then we we went on this jet and we went to, you know, Mm -hmm. we we went to Germany and and I had, you know, Jackson Brown on board. And, you know, it was all stuff like that. And he at first, the biographer thought, well, this is really disappointing because I'm not going to be able to use any of this. And then he said he realized, no, actually, this is the story. That the story of Rolling Stone is that it started out as this, you know, that that the people who mattered to Rolling Stone were Bob Dylan and John Lennon. And that it was all about, you know, the protest and and civil rights and the war and, you know, all of these these things that you would take seriously. But then as the 70s turned into the 80s mm-hmm. and Rolling Stone made this decision and said, we can turn this into a glossy magazine because advertisers will like it and it will be easier for us to sell these high-end advertising and, uh, you know, a lot of people said, you're never going to be able to pull this off because high-end advertisers don't want to be associated with, you know, this counterculture, the personality that Rolling Stone had. But he said, no, no, no we can bridge this gap because what we're going to do is we're going to sell it to all of these wealthy people. And we're going to say in there, you know, these people still do believe that they are Bob Dylan at heart, you know, they believe that they're anti-establishment. They believe that they're rebellious. They believe that they're like men of the people kind of thing and that they're independent and they're not part of this, you know, they're not part of the establishment, but they really want to buy an Audi, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I wonder if we handed out the catcher in the rye and had people read it. I think a lot of people would read it and say, Oh, yeah, I'm Holden. I'm Holden every day I go into the office. And, you know, I'm the one who who sees clearly and all those other people are phonies and jerks. And maybe people don't realize that they're actually, you know, that that they're yeah. part of the them and not the us. Or or they'll just think, you know, it's nice being the them. Yeah. 
right? They'll say uh, that uh, narrator of that book is insane, and that <laughs> and that uh, what time is the football game? Yeah. Oh boy. Well, I hate to wrap up there. Uh, <laughs> do you have anything left on your list that would be positive? A positive note for us to end up on? Um, I think the the surprises in the book mm. are really great. Like you know. When he just out of the blue calls his favorite teacher. Oh yeah, and you know he goes over to the house and he he makes a remark about how much older his teacher's wife is than him. Mm-hmm. And then after they have this great conversation, he you know sleeps on the couch because it's so late, and then he wakes up and his his teacher sort of pawing him, mm. and he runs out of there. I mean, there are there there are moments like that where you just just woken up out of this complaining, whiny state. Mm. Yeah. So it's it that's a positive note. How that it's that it's that's a fun book. It has all these surprises <laughs> and and running around Manhattan at night. I mean, that night just mm. goes on and on and on. Yeah. I, I, I think I was a kid. I, I just remember thinking that that seemed to be like the kind of night I really want to have. Yeah, that's true. I, I'm looking through my list of stuff, you know, the, uh, the role that the catcher in the rye played in the John Lennon assassination and the Ronald Reagan attempted assassination, not exactly a positive way to end. It did. <laughs> It did, it did kind of uh, strike me as I was going through those uh, episodes, which I had never really read that much about, especially the John Lennon one was just so painful for me to read that I really had to force myself to do it before we started talking tonight. But um, it did make me think it's hard to imagine this book really resonating with anybody like that today. Like we have so many other examples of things that are like the catcher in the rye that I think are more, maybe a little more immediate for people that it's hard yeah. to imagine a, a deranged person, um, carrying the catcher in the rye and, and saying, this is something Holden would want me to do. And, you know, this is my statement. And then assassinating someone using yeah. it as, you know, sort of their, uh, they view it as sort of the, the the person who's really seen through all of the phoniness and everything. I think it's gotten a little too dated in order to really get in anyone's mind quite like that. Also, I don't think people read enough. I mean, the fact that yeah. John Hickley Jr. and uh, what's his face? Uh, Goodman. Mark David uh, Chapman. Mark Chapman even knew that catching the right was popular. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's astounding today. Yeah. I, I, I meet plenty of people who just tell me, um, I don't read fiction. Yeah. It's not even said like, uh, right. you know, in, in an embarrassing way. It's, it's more like, you know, like I wipe my ass. I don't read fiction. Yeah. Okay. So here's, here's maybe, <laughs> here's maybe a positive way to end. I, <laughs> <laughs> Keep trying. Um, I I do love the story that uh, that Jerry Lewis was trying really hard to get the rights to The Catcher in the Rye, and he said, I just knew from the moment I read it that I was Holden Caulfield. And then somebody <laughs> did the math and said, 
he had to have been in his mid forties when he read that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why has the film never been made of Catcher in the Rye? Well, because Holden wouldn't like it. That was Salinger's. Uh, that was his famous thing. He, you know, that Holden hated movies. He thought movies were so phony, and mm-hmm. whenever someone would a producer would come and try to buy the rights to it, Salinger would say, I can't do it because Holden wouldn't like it. And everybody kind of viewed that as, oh, Salinger, who's living as a as a recluse, uh, has just gone crazy. And that's a, an example of him being, you know, eccentric. I think he was just protecting his book and just saying, it would be kind of weird to have a book that's where the the narrator is so anti-Hollywood, it would be kind of weird to have a film with that narrator in it. Wow. So who holds the rights today? Do you know? Well, I know that uh, Steven Spielberg, Harvey Weinstein, (laughs) of all people, Jack Nicholson, and Leonardo DiCaprio have all tried to get a film version of the novel made. I don't know if they ever actually acquired the rights. I, I assume that they didn't. I assume yeah. it's it's held, and uh, I suppose is Margaret Salinger now the the owner of his literary estate. Mm, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. So they must uh, be complying with their father's wishes as well. I think. Well, if you haven't read it, go read it. And if you have read it, and it's been many many years, try re rereading. Yeah. I, I think it, it does serve that purpose. It That was probably the most illuminating thing for me as I was reading yeah. it now. It had been a while since I had read it. I think I had read it, you know, in my early 20s, in my mid and late 20s, maybe once in my 30s. But to read it now, it really made me reflect a lot on the first initial times that I had read it and who I was and how it was affecting me then. And how it affected me now and and how a more mature read and how I was responding to it. It I didn't always love it. You know, sometimes I kind of missed the person who would read 10 pages and underline passages and go running mm-hmm. off to to book my train to New York so I could try to, <laughs> try to have an adventure in Central Park or something. And mm-hmm. um, I kind of missed that side of me. But... Um, it definitely was worth a reread just to kind of check in and see where I was now. Here's a happy note. I, I read in a poll a few years ago that Catcher in the Rye is the number one book for starting a conversation with a stranger mm-hmm. if they're holding it. Ah. So they did some study about yeah. being approached if you're holding a certain book because you know, if somebody really loves the book you you just read and you're you're or you're reading and they say catch in the riot was number one huh okay so it's brought people together <laughs> <laughs> at least to complain yeah right because everyone else is a phony the 60 million people who have read it are not but, <laughs> but everybody else is a phony okay well let's end things there we took i think seven or eight different stabs at coming up with a happy ending and um, I'll count that as uh, the most successful attempt that the uh, people on trains who are holding the catcher in the rye feel free to go up to them and, and say something nice about, uh, you know, looks like you're spending some time with my old friend Holden. 
uh, <laughs> or whatever icebreaker you use. And Mike, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike for joining me. One correction, I think I referred to an upstate prep school once or twice. Holden actually attended a prep school in Pennsylvania. And I'm sure there were many other mistakes as well, but that's one I happened to notice. You can email me the others if you need to vent. Remember to visit us at historyofliterature.com. Find our store at historyofliterature.com slash shop. And join us at patreon.com slash literature. And for those of you here in the States, may you have a wonderful holiday full of good cheer, loving family and friends, and a little time to yourself where you can squirrel away and read a little something-something. Don't forget literature this holiday season, and don't forget yourself and your mind. If you need to pick me up, check out our sister podcast, The Smart Awesome Show. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>